Welcome to International Law Talk of Walters Kluwer International Group. During a series of podcasts, we'll bring you insightful analysis, commentary, and discussion from thought leaders and experts on current topics in the field of international arbitration, IP law, international tax law, competition law, and other international legal fields. Welcome to our tax podcast. My name is Lisa Zoltoska, and I'm the Acquisition Manager for Tax Products at Kluwer Law International. I'm delighted that Professor Vikram Shand and Professor Brian Arnold have agreed to discuss the issues relating to the impact of Pillar 2 on corporate tax incentives. Professor Chand is Professor of International Tax Law at the University of Lausanne and is the Program Director of the Executive Program in Transfer Pricing. He is also the Managing Editor of the Kluwer International Tax Blog. Brian J. Arnold is Senior Advisor, Canadian Tax Foundation, Toronto. He is a graduate of Harvard Law School and taught tax law at a Canadian law school for 28 years. He has been a consultant to several governments, the OECD and the United Nations. He has been a visiting professor at Harvard Law School, New York University School of Law and the University of Sydney. So over to you, Vikram and Brian. Thank you, Lisa, for this wonderful introduction. And indeed, it's uh, my honor actually to uh, interview Professor Brian Arnold. Just for all our listeners to know, I was the first time I read a book on international taxation. It was actually Professor Arnold's book. And I'm really glad that he accepted uh, to do this interview with us, uh, with Kluwer. And uh, without further ado, uh, we can directly get into the podcast discussion. And uh, Professor Arnold, my first question to you is, uh, can you just quickly recap uh, how the Pillar 2 rules work before we get into a discussion on the impact of Pillar 2 on corporate tax incentives? Uh, sure, that uh, that's that's fine. I would be happy to. And thank you for uh, uh, thank you for having me. And I'm pleased to know that uh, reading my book on uh, tax did not turn you off from following a career in tax. So um, just a brief uh, overview of Pillar 2. It's a 15% minimum tax on the income of multinational enterprises that have financial accounting revenue in excess of 750 million euros in two of the previous four years. So this is designed to deal with uh, large multinationals. And the global minimum tax will apply where the multinational enterprises net globe income, uh, which is uh, financial income earned in a country. So through its subsidiaries and its permanent establishments in that country uh, is less than 15 percent. And if the uh, uh, effective tax rate in the country is less than 15 percent, then we have two top-up taxes that potentially apply. So the IIR top-up tax is imposed to the extent that uh, the country's ETR is less than 15%, and it's imposed not on net globe income, but on a different base, which is excess profit. And excess profit is the net globe income earned in the country uh, less something called the substance-based income exclusion, which is fundamentally a percentage of the cost of the uh, 
tangible assets in the country and the payroll costs in the country, 5% of those, but it declines uh, over a transitional, uh, a transitional period. So those calculations are done for each multinational enterprise and for each country in which the multinational enterprise uh, operates. And by the way, I should say right at the outset that <coughs> obviously countries can provide tax incentives, any kind of tax incentives that they want to companies that aren't subject to Pillar 2. So small enterprises, uh, there's, uh, there's no implications, no restrictions imposed by, uh, by Pillar 2. So that's the IIR top-up uh, tax. It is then supported by the UTPR top-up tax, and it applies basically whenever the IIR top-up tax does not apply. So if a country decides it doesn't want to participate in Pillar 2, or it's a situation where the country where the, the, uh, uh, the multinational is headquartered, um, taxes the income earned in that country at less than 15%, then the UTPR basically comes into play and supports uh, the, uh, the IIR top-up tax. It's, it's imposed on the same base as the IIR. So net globe income less the substance-based uh, income inclusion, and then it is just allocated to countries based on the uh, the net book value of tangible assets in the country, and the number of employees. So it's a rather arbitrary tax. And then the final thing to mention, which I think is very important in terms of tax incentives, is that the IIR top-up tax, which is 15% less the country's ETR imposed on its net globe income, <coughs> less the substance-based income inclusion or excess profit, there's a credit if a country uh, introduces a qualifying domestic minimum top-up tax. And it's, once again, based on the same calculation of excess uh, profit. The way to think about it is it's a substitute for the IIR uh, uh, top-up tax, and it basically will eliminate any IIR or UTPR top-up tax uh, uh, imposed. I think that's, uh, I hope that's a sufficient uh, introduction to set the stage for our discussion of, of tax incentives. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for this. So in terms of the rule order, the first tax that applies is the QDMTT, then the IAR, and finally, if the IR does not apply, then we have the UTPR, which kicks in. So against this background, uh, I've, my next question to you is, you know, um, could you just, you already touched upon the topic of tax incentives, but just for all our listeners to know, can you just tell us what are the different kinds of corporate tax incentives that countries offer to multinational enterprises? Well, that, that would take uh, much longer than we have, I think, uh, um, because there's just a proliferation of different kinds of, uh, of tax incentives, uh, ranging from uh, from tax holidays, from income-based uh, uh, tax incentives, in other words, re reductions in the rate of tax or exemptions of income from tax, uh, to, to tax credits, various kinds of tax credits, 
to uh, incentives based on expenditures that multinational uh, enterprises make, uh, to incentives for investments in certain activities, uh, such as uh, research and development in certain areas. So special economic zones uh, in in a country. Uh, So there's just a a huge uh, variety of different types of incentives. And I think the one of the critical things with respect to Pillar 2 and tax incentives is not so much the type of tax incentive, uh, but the scope of it. Um, and so uh, uh, how, what, what impact does the tax incentive have on uh, these, uh, these top-up taxes under, uh, under Pillar 2? Yes, absolutely. So uh, just to summarize, uh, like you rightly mentioned, the countries currently offer income-based incentives and expenditure-based incentives. Uh, the income-based incentives are incentives such as tax holidays and expenditure-based incentives are your tax allowances or any kind of accelerated depreciation provisions or immediate expensing, so on and so forth. Uh, so, you know, uh, you Let's just zoom into the income-based incentive and let's have a discussion around income-based incentives. So could you please tell us what is your view on the impact of these GLOBE and QDMTT rules on these income-based incentives that you mentioned, such as reduced tax rates, full exemption of profits, partial exemption of profits, so on and so forth? Sure. So, uh, I mean, I think the, uh, uh, the crucial issue here is that the broader these exceptions are, so if a country has tax holidays, for example, where they simply exempt from tax all of the profits of a a multinational operating in the country, that kind of uh, income-based incentive is more likely to produce uh, uh, issues under Pillar 2. It's more likely to result in IIR top-up tax, and and the reason the reason for that is is pretty obvious that the uh, it's very likely if you exempt all the profits that the uh, the country's ETR with respect to that uh, multinational enterprise will be less than uh, than fifteen percent, and by the same token, the more targeted an income-based uh, tax incentive is, the less likely it will be to result in uh, in a reduced uh, ETR and the application of, of the uh, IIR top-up tax. Now, that's because the, the income and covered taxes of a multinational enterprise for purposes of calculating its effective tax rate <coughs> operates on the basis of blending or averaging. So all of the taxes that go into the pot to calculate the numerator of of the fraction that produces the effective tax rate (coughs) is based on an averaging of high and low tax rates. So if you have a tax incentive that is narrowly targeted to one particular type of income and is perhaps limited to a certain amount of that income, that is less likely. It may be simply offset 
by higher taxes, higher taxes meaning higher than 15%, so that it doesn't result in an ETR for that country of, uh, uh, of less than 15%. And as a result, uh, there will be no IIR top-up tax in that situation. Yes, thank you for that answer. Uh, so, indeed, um, if, if um, just to summarize, um, you know, whenever we've got a tax incentive, let's say a full exemption of profits from taxation, of course, the numerator uh, of the formula to compute effective tax rates will most likely be zero, whereas the denominator would just be your global income. So, your effective tax rate uh, drops down to zero. And like you rightly mentioned, Professor, when you have this, um, or when you when there is a situation where you have income some income streams which uh, which which have access to a tax incentive and some income streams which are taxed at high corporate tax rates, then this blending mechanism can be used uh, to ensure that um, the multinational is still paying taxes of more than fifteen percent. So thank you, thanks a lot for that response. I think it's uh, it's going to be very clear to our listeners uh, that income based incentives uh, are somehow going to be deeply affected by uh, these by the entire pillar 2 project sorry to interrupt but i should add one one uh, one further comment there um and your summary is uh, uh was very very accurate but the one additional thing and uh, i'm sure it's it's going to come up uh, later uh, but we should mention it with respect to uh income-based in, in uh, incentives, and that is uh, the role of the substance-based income exclusion. <laughs> so income-based incentives can be provided to the extent of <clears throat> whatever the multinational enterprise's substance-based income exclusion is without giving rise to, uh, uh, to top-up tax. Yes, absolutely. That's that's a great point that you mentioned because at the start you rightly mentioned that you pay your top top up taxes on your excess profits, and uh, the formula to calculate your excess profits is your globe income minus the substance based carve out. Well, if your substance based carve out is equal to your globe income, then in the end you don't pay any top up taxes. Uh, so yes, that's a great point that you um, added into this discussion. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, Let's move into now expenditure-based incentives. Now, I know there are different kinds of expenditure-based incentives, but uh, let's just uh, start by talking about uh, what is your view on the impact of these GLOBE and QDMTT rules on incentives such as tax allowances, for example, super R&D deductions, notional interest, uh, notional interest deductions, and so on. Well, those, uh, those types of... Uh... Uh, of incentives, and I, I assume that what we're talking about here is where, for example, um, a country decides that it will give a deduction for two hundred percent of an expenditure on research and uh, and development. So, to the extent that the uh, the incentive exceeds the amount of the actual expenditure, um, that's going to reduce. Uh, the uh, the company's uh, covered taxes, uh, and and as a result, it will have an impact on the uh, uh, on its effective uh, its effective tax rate. Um, to the extent that uh, <clears throat> that the incentive is limited uh, to the amount of the expenditure, uh, then we need to get into well what 
what type of expenditure are we uh, uh, are we talking about here? And that that involves um, <clears throat> both the the substance based income exclusion once again and the deferred tax accounting rules for uh, uh, for certain uh, certain deferred uh, tax liabilities. Yes, actually, uh, you know. Uh, my question was mostly with respect to the expenditure that you rightly said, uh, where you can expend up to two hundred. You can expense up to two hundred percent of a particular deduction. So you spend hundred on research and development, but the tax law of this country allows you to deduct two hundred. And like you rightly said, uh, to, uh, to the extent that countries offer these kind of incentives, these incentives will be impacted because they will uh, drastically reduce your numerator of the formula to com- compute effective tax rates. So this is somehow, this kind of incentive is also kind of deeply impacted by the GLOBE rules. And you also mentioned in your um, in your comments about some kind of incentives which create timing differences. Now, th- that was actually my next question for you, is uh, very quickly, what is your view on the impact of the GLOBE QDMTT rules on incentives such as accelerated depreciation of tangible assets or intangible assets? Yes, well, I mean, I think there's a big difference between uh, the accelerated depreciation of tangible assets, which the, uh, the, the GLOBE rules look on very favorably, uh, as opposed to intangible assets, um, which will have the same impact that we talked about. It will reduce covered taxes and uh, have the potential to reduce the, uh, uh, the country's effective, uh, effective tax rate. Um, so <clears throat> incentives that are uh, simply represent uh, timing differences, so accelerated depreciation and immediate expensing, uh, as I say, are looked on favorably um, uh, by the uh, uh, by the pillar two rules. So if there if there's no permanent difference between uh, uh, accounting treatment and tax treatment, uh, then then what uh, what happens uh, essentially is that as long as the period of deferral it does not extend beyond five years. Then these uh, uh, these these fast write-offs have no impact, um, and because they're um, <clears throat> they're treated as these these deferred tax accounts are treated as covered taxes, so they do not have that effect on reducing the uh, the country's ETR. I should also say that. That if the deferral exceeds five years, um, then even uh, even then, if we're talking about uh, accelerated depreciation for taxable a- for tangible assets and research and development expenses, then there's a special provision to say that they continue to be treated as uh, as covered taxes. Um, so. <clears throat> That, what that basically means for countries, I think, and for uh, for investors, is that countries may be tempted to think about converting either either uh, uh, tax incentives, timing tax incentives that uh, exist for more than five years to limit the period to 
to five years, um, or to convert other kinds of incentives into uh, these uh, provisions that give accelerated uh, uh, depreciation or deductions for R&D. The, the difficult balance there to me is that those things moving from a permanent difference to a timing difference may reduce the incentive effect for investors. Um, so that's the difficult balancing exercises that countries may have to do in these situations. Yes, absolutely. So um, <clears throat> just to summarize once again, um, accelerated depreciation on tangible assets um, or any incentives linked to such uh, accelerated depreciation rules for tangible assets, they're somehow blessed by uh, the Globe QDMTT framework, whereas for intangible assets, there's you can offer it up to five years and up more than five years. There is a particular recapture rule that actually kicks in, and uh, like you rightly said, Professor, um, there is kind of there could be temptation for countries to somehow convert their tax incentives into these provisions. Um, but yeah, that's like you already mentioned the balances the you know that's a difficult thing to achieve but still achievable <laughs> it's just that the computations and calculations will just become even more complex to achieve such a regime um so thank you for your answer for that question too um now let's move into tax credits now just as a background um, um you know my first question is you know, could you just explain what are tax credits as such? Because a lot of our listeners from are from all over the globe, and they also are from many countries which do not have a tax credit regime. So perhaps you can just tell us a little bit about tax credits as such. What are tax credits? Uh, which countries currently have tax credits? And perhaps you know you can give a Canadian the Canadian examples. Um, and you know you can just talk tell us how these tax credits are treated under the globe rules, especially these qualified refundable tax credits. Okay, well, these um, tax credits, they take various uh, shapes and forms, but uh, fundamentally what they involve are not deductions in computing income, uh, the way we talked about uh, income-based tax incentives, <clears throat> but these are deductions in computing the amount of tax payable by an enterprise. So they're a direct reduction of, of tax, usually on a dollar-for-dollar dollar, uh, uh, basis. So, for example, uh, many countries have investment tax credits, where if you invest in, in certain kinds of equipment, uh, you will get a credit for uh, a part or all of the amount of your expenditure against the amount of uh, uh, of tax payable. Um, <clears throat> so uh, these these types of credits uh, typically they can be uh, limited in a variety of ways. <clears throat> Often they are not refundable tax credits, so they simply reduce the amount of tax payable. And if the amount of the credit exceeds the amount of tax payable, often these credits can be carried forward or back to other years and used to reduce the tax in those, uh, in those years. 
non non refundable tax credits under pillar 2 are simply treated as reductions of covered taxes and they have the same effects on a country's uh, effective tax rate uh, as we discussed uh, as we discussed previously um, and and that <clears throat> there's special treatment however for what uh, uh, what you mentioned, uh, which are qualifying refundable tax credits. So these are tax credits that are refundable in cash or cash equivalents. For example, they can be used to, to reduce another tax um, other than the income tax uh, within a four-year period. So if it extends beyond four years, um, it's not a qualifying uh, refundable tax credit, and then it's treated just uh, the way I described those non-refundable tax credits. <clears throat> but if it's refundable within uh, within four years, then it it doesn't reduce covered taxes. <clears throat> it's included in in net globe income um, for purposes of the effective tax rate calculation. In other words, the way to think about qualifying refundable tax credits is they are treated the same as government grants. They're just substitutes for direct government grants to, uh, to enterprises. Um, and those direct government grants obviously uh, uh, don't affect uh, don't affect covered taxes, but they're included in the uh, in the company's uh, the company's income. My understanding is that uh, developing countries don't use refundable uh, uh, refundable tax credits uh, uh, much at all. Um, <clears throat> whether whether countries would consider because of this favorable treatment of qualifying refundable tax credits, whether they consider <clears throat> shifting into qualifying uh, refundable tax credits um, is an interesting uh, question. Um, but what countries have to weigh up there is that they are much more costly than non-refundable credits. So uh, that's that's once again the the balancing act that uh, that countries have to do. Yes, thank you for that answer. And um, actually, in addition to the qualified refundable tax credits, I just want to bring to the attention of our listeners that recently in the July administrative guidance, the OECD introduced a new concept. It is a new new kind of a tax new kind of tax credit it's known as marketable transferable tax credits now these are tax credits which are also treated as uh, income globe income and they're not reduced from the numerator now uh, typical uh, what it is our understanding that these tax credits were somehow sheltered um, by the globe rules because of uh, the U.S. Uh, actually, um, just as a background for everybody to know, in the Inflation Reduction Act, the United States uh, government had actually introduced a lot of transferable tax credits. And one of the questions that was um, still pending before the OECD's inclusive framework is the treatment of these transferable tax credits. Now, the OECD's administrative guidance actually clarifies now that till they extend these tax transferable tax credits, they are marketable in nature. They are MTTCs. They are, they are again going to be treated as globe income, but this <clears throat> is going to be quite difficult for 
developing countries to understand. And uh, well, we are going to talk about the uh, impact of this on developed and developing countries in another question. Uh, but that was um, as a background. And I think, uh, Professor, you slightly answered, but the question, my next question, but the next question was, uh, how do you think countries are going to, like, do you think the tax competition landscape is going to move towards these tax credits to QRTCs or MTTCs um, as a response to these GLOBE and QDMTT rules? What do you think uh, uh, the developed and developing country is going to do? What, what would your assumption be here? Yeah, it's um, once again, that's a difficult question. I suspect that some might. I doubt that uh, developing countries uh, um, would move in that direction simply because of the uh, the complexity of of those kinds of uh, of, of credits. And and once again. I mean, especially moving to a uh, qualifying refundable tax credit um, <clears throat> is the cost of of that for countries is uh, uh, will be a serious uh, a serious serious consideration. Um, the, I mean, writing special rules for the United States is uh, is something that we are uh, quite quite accustomed to uh, in the international uh, tax community. Um, and uh, whether that's uh, justified or not uh, is beside the point. It's simply uh, it's simply the reality. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. So you know, we spoke a lot about the impact of the Globe and QDMTT rules on corporate tax incentives. There is another interlocking rule uh, in the entire Pillar Two project, which is the subject to tax rule, and. You know, very quickly, could you just explain to us what is the subject to tax rule and how does this rule actually impact income-based and expenditure-based regimes? Okay, this is uh, this will be uh, this will be quick, and it's uh, it's difficult to explain quickly, but I'll do the best I can. So, the subject to tax rule is basically a rule that's intended to be for the benefit of developing countries, and it fundamentally says that. Where payments are made from a developing country <clears throat> to residents of a developed country, and there's a tax treaty that limits the developing country's uh, ability to uh, to tax the payments, certain payments, <clears throat> and the developed country taxes those payments at a nominal corporate tax rate of less than nine percent, which is adjusted for certain tax preferences, which is why we get into the tax incentives, and then if that's the case, they're taxed at less than 9%, then the source country, the developing country, can apply a top-up tax under this new subject-to-tax rule, which is going to be incorporated into, uh, into countries' tax treaties uh, either bilaterally or through uh, a multilateral uh, uh, instrument. Um, so, as I say, the the nominal corporate tax rate in a country is going to be adjusted for <coughs> permanent, not not uh, timing or temporary differences, for permanent preferences that are directly linked to the item of income. So, the first thing we can take from that is that expenditure-based preferences are fundamentally not relevant here. Only 
the incentives that relate to a particular item of income are uh, are relevant in this situation and they have to be <clears throat> the wording in the in the provision is directly linked to that uh, particular item of income <clears throat> so this is these are only very narrowly targeted <clears throat> tax incentive provisions that are going to be taken into account so for example the str applies to fees for services so even if you have a country that imposes a 15% tax on the recipient of fees for services, um, but they have a special tax preference that then reduces the effective tax on that to less than 9%, then the subject to tax rule will uh, uh, will be invoked. <clears throat> I know that's a... Uh, <clears throat> That's a lot to pack into a short period of time, but uh, that's that's the best I can do. To summarize, uh, if I understood correctly, Professor, uh, the point you're trying to make here is that the Pillar 2 project makes it unappealing for countries to offer income-based incentives, such as tax holidays, for example. Whereas the Pillar 2 project, when you read the GLOBE, QDM, GT, and STTR rules, they still allow or they still permit countries to offer expenditure-based incentives, such as qualified refundable tax credits, marketable transferable tax credits, um, immediate expensing of tangible assets, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, one item that we didn't really speak about in detail is this shipping income exclusion. And countries can still offer uh, incentives to the shipping sector. Am I right, Professor? Uh, yes, that's that's right. And I could, if I could, just add one thing. I mean, I agree with you generally about the uh, your summary about the income uh, income based incentives. <clears throat> I just add that if if a country has uh, income based tax incentives and they're narrowly targeted, then those incentives can still exist with uh, with pillar two as well, especially if those incentives are targeted at income uh, from from real substance based activities in the country to the extent that they are then covered by the substance based income exclusion. Absolutely. Yeah, so that's uh, thank you for adding this additional point. Uh, indeed, this SBIE can also come to the rescue of a lot of countries. Now, against all the discussion that we had, last question to you is, what would you recommend both developed and developing countries to do in light of the discussion that we've had? Uh, how? What would you suggest uh, uh, an appropriate course of action for developed and developing countries? You know, that that really is the uh, the key the key question, and I think uh, for for countries, my advice countries other than the United States that can uh, can get special provisions inserted into uh, into Pillar Two. I mean, I would say, and I'd be fascinated to to know if you agree or not that every country, but especially uh, developing countries, should be introducing a uh, QDMTT, um, because that QDMTT will basically <clears throat> protect th their tax bases <clears throat> from being 
captured by other countries if they happen to have tax incentives that reduce their their ETR to less than 50% and uh, and result in IIR top-up tax, the QDMTT will simply come in and prevent that tax from going to another country. <clears throat> so that is a very important, I think, uh, tax base uh, protection measure that countries uh, countries should adopt. And then <clears throat> they should do that immediately in order to protect their tax base uh, because there are a bunch of countries that are already uh, uh, gearing up to start applying uh, uh, Pillar 2 in, in uh, next year. And then in the longer term, countries should, uh, <clears throat> should revert, review their tax incentives um, and that's just good advice independent of uh, Pillar 2, that periodically countries should review their tax incentives um, and, and decide whether or not uh, the tax incentives are, uh, are doing the job effectively that countries uh, want them to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I think that was a very good summary. And I have to agree with you that it makes sense for countries to introduce uh, QDMTTs as a response to this Pillar 2 project. And uh, with respect to QDMTTs, I would just like to mention that quite recently, the OECD released a toolkit on for, uh, for introduction of QDMTTs. I actually read that toolkit and, you know, in fact, I really like this toolkit because it just simplifies everything for developing countries. And indeed, developing countries still need to grasp these complicated set of rules and probably this toolkit can be a good starting point. Um, in addition to reading the literature coming out, for example, from the African Tax Administration Forum, which is also uh, pretty good. Last question I would like to ask you is... Uh, um, um, uh, on on the subject of corporate tax incentives, uh, as a last question, uh, the question is as follows: It is on subsidies. Now, what happens if countries do not really want to give tax incentives anymore, but they want to compete using subsidies? Any any thoughts on that? Well, the the um, <clears throat> I mean that's that's a way of avoiding uh, the implications. Uh, of uh, or the risk of uh, <clears throat> of pillar two applying, <clears throat> but but providing direct uh, uh, subsidies to uh, to enterprises <clears throat> is very expensive, and uh, so I think uh, uh, countries want to be very very cautious uh, about <clears throat> shifting from tax incentives to direct government subsidies simply as a knee-jerk response to Pillar 2. Um, that may be appropriate in some cases, but it's certainly not appropriate uh, uh, as a, as a broad-based uh, strategy. <clears throat> the last thing I'll say, and I should have mentioned this earlier, um, uh, but you're, you're mentioning the recent uh, OECD uh, report. The OECD also has a very good report on tax incentives in pillar two that came out I think in uh, in the middle of last uh, last year and that uh, listeners who are interested in following up on some of those things would uh, would find that report uh, useful 
Yes, absolutely. So thank you once again, Professor. I think we've come to the conclusion of our podcast. And uh, thank you once again for your time. And it was really an interesting podcast. I hope you had uh, fun uh, in preparing and uh, for the, in preparing for this podcast and responding to the questions. Um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I'm pretty sure our listeners will also enjoy it. So thank you once again. My pleasure. Thank you to Professor Chand and Professor Arnold for this interesting discussion. As this is a rapidly developing area, you can find information on the international tax issues relating to Pillar 2 in our journals such as Intertax and on our online platform, Plura International Tax Law, which features International Tax Primer, written by Professor Arnold, in our International Books section. Stay informed. Subscribe to this podcast. Visit clurelaw.com or follow us on social media. 